Pizza. Did she say pizza? Your ultimate source for chiptunes, video game talk, and pepperoni. Delivered to you from Los Angeles and into the digital cyberspace of the 2020s. Pizza power! That's right, when super giant pizza. I want a large, thick crust with double cheese, ham, pepperoni. Hey, where's my pizza? 
Pizza time. Welcome back to the Pixel Pizza podcast. You just listened to our chiptune artist of the week, Loam Arme, and their track, uh, L'Arc du Tanné. It's a French artist. I am not well-versed in French, so hopefully I pronounced those things right. I had to use Google auto-speak to figure out <laughs> the pronunciation, so uh, we'll see how that went. But now we are here with our interview portion of the episode, and I'm very excited to be speaking with this week's guest. He is the art and game director at Bitten Studios, who are most known for their game Cassette Beast, but also Lana's Lena's Inception. Uh, this is Jay Bayless. How are you doing, Jay? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, so we'd like to get started by asking the question, Jay, when in your life did you know you wanted to make games? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I th it's, it's very interesting. For me, I've kind of always been interested in games. In, I mean, I think that's probably quite a cliche uh, response you get. Mm -hmm. But even from like a young age, I mean, um, I remember just being kind of transfixed by games and getting a lot of joy out of, you know, um, kind of like drawing what I would imagine, you know, maps and levels be for level, like for games on paper and just kind of like designing puzzles for people and, you know, coming up with like fake game manuals for fake games that I invented as a kid. I was really oh, into games cool. and I'd, I'd always loved the idea of making games, but at the same time, I kind of, you know, I grew up reading like, you know, game magazines and reading about games online. And it was always kind of said that, you know, actually working in games is like miserable and you'll mm. be part of a huge team and you'll, you know, you'll be designing a tiny portion of it. And there wasn't never, ever a sense that it was an industry that I would enjoy going into. Um, and I guess things changed in that, you know, when I was in high school um, and I was kind of, you know, looking into, you know, university and what to study. Um, the kind of mid to late 2000s indie boom kind of took off, mm. you know, games like Terraria and Minecraft came out um, in the early 2010s. And suddenly it was like, oh, this is like a thing you can do. You know, this is a career path you could take. People are making the kind of games that I would be able to make. And there's like a market for that. And it suddenly kind of shifted around. And I just kind of fell into it in that sense. I mean, I'd always grown up you know doing like sprite art you know like pixel art and stuff online and it was always a means to an end for you know making like silly game maker games on my own you know finding online sprite sheets from like mario and pokemon games and make like putting things together as just like a side hobby mm -hmm. and having fun with it but it was never even something that crossed my mind for the longest time that hey you can actually do this as a job you know draw pixel art and things um so it is, it is kind of funny how I just, I feel like in, a, in many ways, I was the right person in the right time to kind of end up getting into it. Um, if I would have a bit older, maybe I would have missed it. Um, mm. So it, it's kind of like circumstance, you know, I happened to be the right age at the time when the industry was shifting and suddenly, you know, the small games that, I mean, the kind of games we make now are small games and that's the kind of thing that you can make now. And that wasn't really a thing up to a certain point in time, you know? Yeah, no, yeah, that's you. You had the skill set, you had the motivation, and yeah, everything lined up. That's great. 
So then Chucklefish was your first sort of entry into the industry? Yeah, so I worked uh, in London um, at Chucklefish um, from about 2014. And uh, it's there that I met my uh, colleague, Tom Coxon. And, um, you know, in our spare time, uh, we were working on uh, his game, uh, Lender's Inception, which is, you know, kind of this uh, Zelda-inspired procedurally generated game. And eventually, you know, we decided to kind of go solo and strike it out on our own. And Lender's Inception was the first project that we kind of worked on as like a game that we were then working on full time. So, you know, um, we were wrapping up on that and then we ended up releasing that in uh, January uh, 2020. And then from that, and then after that, we were working on uh, Cassette Beasts. Oh, wow. So you just jumped right into it after that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, we'd been working in games for a while then together. So there was a sense that, you know, if you want to strike it out on your own, we need to, you know, have commercial, we need to have like a commercial product, you know. It's yeah. not just about, you know, making the game of your dreams because everyone's got lots of fun ideas for games, but being a game developer is a business. It's it's as much, it's like, you have to think about it from a business point of view as well. So there was kind of a big discussion and we didn't decide on making Cassette Beast straight away. It wasn't that we had this clear idea immediately um, that that's what we wanted to do. We just needed to, we just needed to make something that people would be interested in and we needed to figure out what that would be. Um, so, you know, we had a few ideas floating around um, in our kind of early stages of, you know, what, what should we do? What can we do? What would people be interested in? Um, and we worked with uh, Procedural Generation on Lenders Inception. And we also, you know, Lenders Inception is kind of a strange game. It's almost like a creepypasta horror take on Zelda. Hmm. And, you know, we had this idea of like, you know, there's these horror elements that we really like. We really like these like, uh, you know, classic Nintendo vibes, you know, uh, Tom and I both, you know, a lot of our friendship was found, founded on the fact that we both loved like, you know, classic 90s, uh, you know, Nintendo games, Zelda and Mario and Pokemon. Mm -hmm. And so we had all these elements that we knew we liked and that we knew we could do a good job with, but we needed to figure out, you know, what that would manifest as. So we did a lot of brainstorming and we kind of ended up with Cassette Beasts. Um, so for those who don't know, Cassette Beast is kind of like is a uh, monster collecting open world RPG. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Pokemon DNA in there. There's a lot of Zelda in there. Um, but again, there's a lot of that kind of, uh, you know, there's some of those creepypasta horror, horror elements that we'd, uh, you know, honed on Lenners Inception as well. Mm. And there's also a lot of uh, kind of weird Britishness to it as well, which kind <laughs> of reflects kind of where we are. Um, so you end up with this game that is... Uh, kind of strange and I hopefully I'd like to think unique in its own way just kind of from its kind of a myriad pool of influences and things that inspired it that's so, yeah. great <laughs> I mean I mean thank you for giving the whole breakdown because that's usually <laughs> a question that I end up asking so uh totally yeah I love uh I mean speaking as an American I love games that have that weird British energy to it I grew up with all of Rare's games and you know movies <laughs> I love Monty Python. I love the stuff that Ardman does. There's, it's just so it's specific. interesting. I think it's interesting as well because, you know, like I think like a lot of people's references for kind of like the British media, you know, obviously you have things like Doctor Who and then like, you know, Ardman stuff mm -hmm. and even going back to things like Red Dwarf and things. And a lot of these are quite old. And in our heads, it was kind of like, you know, culturally, there hasn't been a huge amount that, you know, feel there's not like, 
you know, the market shifted so much. The kind of stuff that gets made in the UK now is so kind of Americanized. We wanted to make something that was kind of like almost a throwback to that like 80s, 90s era of like mm-hmm. weird British sci-fi and, and comedy, um, which is appropriate because the game itself, you know, cassette beasts, cassettes, very kind of 80s retro. Oh, yeah. And um, we wanted to also kind of play up that 80s retroness, but not in the way that, you know, when people say like, you know, 80s vibe game, they think of something like like Hotline Miami or like Far Cry Blood Dragon, you know, oh, leading yeah. into that like synthwave Miami inspired very american interpretation of like 80s and then 80s for us is very much like kind of like new wave british pop uh kind of the kind of fashion of the time and the slang of the time um and we kind of incorporated that in so we kind of have this game that kind of feels retro but in a way that i think is not what we like to call like the kind of cliche synth wave kind of retro feel yeah so i I think it ends up being something that's kind of quite unusual and and also you know, there's almost like a, um, speaking of like, you know, back in the 80s in the UK, there was this big kind of indie scene for solo and like small team developers of video games in the 80s. Oh, you like had, the um, Spectrum. Yeah, or like the BBC Micro. There's all these weird computer systems that mm-hmm. would run games on like cassettes or floppy disks. And, you know, you'd pay like $3 for a game that someone made in five weeks. And it's interesting to think about how, you know, almost as I was saying before about, you know, the indie market suddenly appeared in the late 2000s. Well, it didn't really. It more like reappeared, you know? It did exist once in this kind of forgotten era of video games. And it almost feels like with Cassette Beasts, we're almost hearkening back, you know, 35 years to that Mm -hmm. time as well. Definitely. Although on a much bigger scale because it's an RPG. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And speaking of that, I wanted to know, like, how do you direct a game with so many possible combinations of moves and characters (laughs) like that that's a great question so um the structure of cassette boost is quite interesting i think when you think of you know rpg or especially kind of monster collecting rpg there's a very particular structure that you have in mind and a lot of people come into our game um expecting a pokemon style structure Mm-hmm. I'm expecting it to be very close to something that they, you know, the reference point they have in their minds. Um, but we didn't, you know, design this game by going, okay, let's take Pokemon and then change it and then like change elements around. We kind of stripped back to like, okay, what do we like out of Pokemon? We think that, you know, collecting monsters is great because it means that you get to, you know, it's just cool to see monsters and collect them. Um, but then we were like, okay, well, we can't, ha- we wanted to have something that feels a bit more grown up. Um, so we needed to remove the kind of like dog fighting element for Pokemon. Mm-hmm. So we went back to the drawing board and said, okay, how can you collect and fight with monsters without it being about like enslaving animals? Yeah. Um, so then we ended up with this this kind of the basis of the whole the whole game's kind of law, which is um, a world where you transform into monsters by kind of copying them onto tapes. So then it means that as a consequence, then it's almost like this kind of superhero tale. You know, you transform and then into this alternate form, and then you fight in that form, you know? Which means that then, okay, the focus is on you as the character, and then the characters in this world who also transform. Um, okay, so we have, you know, this kind of basis for what the the core of the experience is, you know, transforming into monsters. Um, so then we have to think about, um, let's say, you know, in an RPG, big, massive worlds with lots of towns to visit. Well, we're a small studio. Um, the game was 
you know, the full-time staff we had on for Cassette Beast was uh, just me and Tom. So there's just only two of us full-time developers. Um, so we then thought, okay, well, if we had like one town and then you're doing a lot of adventuring by going from different places to there and we can use mm -hmm. that as kind of like a hub world. And then we kind of thought, well, like, rather than have like a big, huge open world, we have like quite a dense one, you know, thinking closer to something like, you know, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, where you have this like very dense world where every screen you're on has something interesting to see. Oh, yeah. That means we don't have to develop this, you know, a huge sprawling world um, with the resources we have. Um, so all these kind of like limitations and then like, like law decisions kind of inform and enforce, reinforce the design of what the game would be. So then you end up with this game where it's kind of open world, you know, you're exploring this world, you can kind of go in different directions and find new things and you're meeting characters and like befriending them and partnering up with them and, um, you know, fighting bosses and things. And even that's where, you know, the kind of horror elements we talked about with Lennon's Inception kind of come back into play. And the kind of end consequences, we have this kind of game that kind of, it's very familiar in many ways. You know, you can look at it and say, that's kind of like Pokemon and it's kind of like Zelda, but then it's also, it's got its own identity as a consequence of how it's kind of had to come together from various decisions. Regarding things like balance and stuff, you might think, okay, how do you balance a game like this where there's so many different things you can do yeah. and different orders you can do things in? And to an extent, we just decide to let the players have fun how they want. Uh, we kind of have a thought early on of like, okay, it must be quite easy to, you know, break the game, you know? You find a really powerful combination of, you know, monster tape and moves early on. But I think in an RPG, when you do that, you feel like it's very fun because it feels like you've beaten the game. Oh, yeah. You know? It feels like you've got one over on the game and that strategy might last you, you know, five hours of gameplay before you have to kind of reinvent it and things. And I think mm -hmm. actually allowing the player to just kind of break the game makes them feel smart and makes them feel engaged with it. Um, so we weren't too worried. Ultimately, there's lots of ways to break the game, but it actually means that it's kind of an experience to figure out which one of those methods you end up finding. Um, and I think our players have responded pretty well to just, you know, we're not too scared of, you know, this discovering this broken strategy early on just because it's, it's a fun thing to do. People want to have fun with games and it's as simple as that. Absolutely. Speaking of kind of horror RPG stuff, have you ever played Inscription? Yes, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I'm playing <laughs> that right now and so great and so cool. I love that they just put stuff in there that you can break the game <laughs> with and... It makes it so much more fun. Yeah, Inscription's also a great example of a game. So part of our design philosophy as well is one of the advantages you have with indie games is that you can constantly surprise people. Yes. So you think about, think about you know, your like $300 million Spider-Man games. Um, those games, you know, like the big kind of Sony AAA productions, they're so big and expensive that they need to sell, which means they need to let you know upfront everything that's in the game because everything that is in the game costs so much to produce. Mm -hmm. um, so you go into a, like a Spider-Man game and you know exactly what you're getting. And that's cool because it's like a big cinematic experience, but it's not going to catch you off guard with anything. Yeah. And I think the big advantage to indies is, you know, we're small scale, we're flexible and people come into your games with modest expectations. Um, so one of the things that we actually have a lot um, from the community is people saying, oh, okay, I thought this game would be all right, but it's actually got way more going on than I thought. Um, the opening, like, 40 minutes of the game have you, you know, 
enter the town and then go on a little quest and then suddenly you're thrust into the kind of like analog creepypasta horror element and players go like whoa i wasn't expecting that yeah and then we introduce fusion where you know any two monsters can fuse into one like unique monster form and that's something that no other game in this genre has and then suddenly it's like whoa okay they have that going on and then we introduce like the kind of social link romance um you know path dynamics that you have with the um the characters and then we introduce all this stuff very quickly in a quick succession and just as kind of like a way to show off like hey there's actually a lot more going on in this game than you expected huh and i think games like inscription are also fantastic examples of that i think that's oh, totally. even why going back to games like undertale that's like you know the game is memorable because it's constantly surprising you and that surprise element is something people love in games and is really hard to find in AAA games, yeah. especially as they get more expensive. Yeah. And it's definitely something Unless we you're Kojima, to do like he gets Unless it. you're Kojima and you can afford to do really weird stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that, you know, you know, utilizing that element of surprise and expectation is something that I think we were pretty successful with. And I think that's something that you see time and time again in the in the indie games that you know get that viral success and so as far as the monster designs i mean there's mm -hmm. so many different monster collecting <laughs> games out there how do you uh, come up with how each of them is going to look and act and everything it's a good question so i mean um so almost all of them were designed by me and you know getting to design this is i mean I grew up with the perfect right time for Pokemon to hit me and, you know, rewire my brain in the late nineties and being tasked with designing like 120 monsters um, for a game like this is kind of like, okay, I've been preparing for this my whole life. <laughs> um, this is, this is the one thing that I was made to do on this earth. And, but there is, it's a good question. You know, how do you make your game not look, you don't want to look at it and say like, oh, that's like a Pokemon. You want to look at it and say, that's a cassette beast. Exactly. Um, and so there's a few things we did. I mean, so part of the kind of like thematic vibe of the game, you know, there's this kind of like element of like kind of retro technology and things going on. And there's a kind of an, a recurring theme throughout the game of about kind of like human invention and discovery and ideas. And a lot of the monsters or kind of have this kind of dreamy kind of artificial feel to them. They all look a bit strange and have a bit of dream logic to them. They're not super kind of fantastical or super kind of like necessarily cutesy, all of them. Um, there's kind of a, I think it's hard to explain, but there's a, a kind of a look that I kind of ended up with after kind of exploring the themes uh, of the game. And I think there's a kind of like a strange look that defines a cassette beast. You know, a lot of them are based on like artificial things. So like, the first one you meet in the game is called Traffic Crab because it's kind of like a crab with a traffic cone uh, for a shell. Um, you know, there's like monsters with like cats with like televisions for head. And like, there's a lot of like mixing like modern iconography with like mythology. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that element of kind of mixing the artificial with the fantastical kind of defines a cassette beast. And then there's kind of like a limited color palette that they're all drawing from. So, you know, you can identify it by its colors and say, okay, that's the colors that cassette beasts have. Um, and then there's some rules. Uh, one rule that I stuck to um, that, I, that I think I always think about when I play, you know, games in this genre that, you know, uh, other studios de uh, developers, I don't like what I call like the elemental animal rule, which mm -hmm. is like, okay, this is a 
poison bird or this ah. is like a water frog. It has to have something else going on with it. Um, so we do have like a poison bird, but we've got kind of like a crow with like a plague doctor mask. So, you know, there's that artificial element mixed sure. in with the kind of natural element. So we try and like mix it up um, and kind of add that touch that makes them, you know, identifiable as a cassette beast. Um, and also because the game is in pixel art, um, you know, our animator, Michael, he animates all of our monsters in like hand-drawn pixel art and uh, they look really nice and fluid. And I think that kind of fluid hand-drawn animation, especially in a genre that is, you know, predominantly in 3D games, you know, Digimon, Pokemon, Persona, um, you know, these, so often, you know, it's, it's contrasting with what you expect to see from stuff in the genre mostly. Oh yeah. So I think that kind of helps them stand apart as well. Um, but yeah, it's tough. I mean, um, I draw a lot of monster designs and I look at them and I say, mm, it doesn't, doesn't quite hit with me, you know? And a lot of stuff gets left on the, the cutting room floor. But, you know, getting to design monsters for a game like this, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm cut out for that at least. This, <laughs> is kind of what I'm, this is what I'm here to do, so. That must have been a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, so another thing about the monsters is, as you were saying, you know, they have sort of clever names that go along with what they <laughs> represent. And it, in different languages, as is localized. Mm -hmm. They have unique names in those. So I was wondering what mm -hmm. was sort of like the back and forth with the localization teams to accomplish Totally. That. So that's a good question. So like, you know, you talk about things like uh, Pokemon and you look at, you know, that's a franchise that has success in every country. And part of the one of the ways that it kind of is so successful is that the localization is very liberal. They're very much mm -hmm. like take these monsters and then like adapt the name and wordplay of them and the cultural references to that like language. Um, so, you know, when we were preparing the game script and all the strings in the game, all the text for localization, um, I ended up kind of writing a big guide for like, hey, this is how I would like the game to be localized. Um, and that includes several things like, um, you know, hey, this character has this kind of regional accent or this character has a very traditional accent and, you know, mm. that should be adapted for the language. Um, but also down to kind of like how we name monsters. And there's a lot of like punny... You know, you think about like Wallace and Gromit and kind of like British humor. There's a lot yeah. of like wordplay. It's kind of cheesy. And we definitely like play into it with like the silly names. And we really wanted that to kind of come across in other languages. So I was really keen um, when I was speaking to our like, you know, localization um, teams. You know, I'd love these names to all be adapted to different languages. And um, from what it sounds like, it was definitely challenging, but it sounds like it was rewarding for them to kind of come up with uh, these unique names. And I had a lot of fun kind of like scrolling through our list on our end, uh, you know, the French and you know German names and translating and like copying, pasting them into Google Translate to figure mm -hmm. out like what the funny pun was they did. And I'm like, some of them are like, oh, that's a better pun than we came up with in English. <laughs> that's like, they've improved on our work there in a way that only works in that language. Mm -hmm. You were mentioning earlier, you know, the dialogue, the characters have different accents mm -hmm. and stuff. And this was the first game the team did with voice acting. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was curious about that. I actually have a, I do voiceover and I have a friend who was in the game. So that oh, was no cool way. to find out. That? Crystal Lee. Oh, yes. Fantastic. Yeah, she plays Meredith. Um, yeah. It was fantastic. It was so, oh, that's, that's so awesome. And um, so, yeah, voice acting. I mean, um. I was really keen on, you know, going back to like making your game feel, you know, indie, you have to make your game feel like it stands out. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do was have voice acting, but also it's a challenge because, 
you know, there's a lot of dialogue in the game. And I don't, I was cutting up all the audio at the time. Mm -hmm. and I'm not an audio guy. I'm not super great with audio. It was basically pushing my skills to their limits. Um, so we ended up doing, I guess what I call like limited voice acting. So rather than like fully directed scripts, it's kind of like, it's got kind of a nintendo way to approach it, you know, like, hey, and what, and sorry. Oh, and like, yeah, like, yeah. So it's kind of like shorter voice clips that we could litter throughout the game to kind of define the voice of these characters without risking, you know, um, me attempting to direct poorly a cutscene with mm -hmm. the poorly voice acted. Um, so it was kind of like a, it was kind of like a time limit and kind of skill limit on our, on our end uh, decision to kind of go with this limited voice acting thing. Um, but I think one thing it does help is it does, it's, there's enough of it in the game that it helps define the characters, but not enough that we had to, you know, figure out the complicated logistics of a fully voiced game. Um, and I think it works out well. I think it works out with the kind of art style. I think um, ultimately, you know, especially because the game is set in a setting where, you know, it's set on this island, but all the people on the island, including the player, they are from like the real world. They're from Earth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're not from fantasy places. They're from England. They're from America. Um, so Meredith, uh, she's from London and she has like a London accent and like use that kind of slang. So these are meant to feel like real world characters. And it's, al it's almost meant to feel like they are, you're all real people together in this situation and you're kind of make making these bonds. And I think having the voice acting in them uh, in there for those characters with, you know, re representing those accents and those different backgrounds of the characters really helps sell that aspect of the story. Yeah, that's not something you really find in RPGs, so that's pretty cool. And also, I think because, you know, we're a British game, I really wanted to have a game with, like, you know, British and, um, and like, accents from, like, the British Isles. We have, like, character um, of mostly almost, like, main character NPC Kaylee. She's Irish, and we have characters from, like, Wales. And mm -hmm. we just wanted to kind of, like, throw in kind of all these kind of kind of local regional accents. I thought it, it kind of, again, leans into the kind of British identity thing we're going for. Awesome. Also on the subject of audio, your brother mm -hmm. Joel is composed for both of your games. Have you yes. guys always had, like, a close working relationship? Um, well... So when we were working on Lennon's Inception, uh, Joel was studying at the time. He was uh, studying music in, uh, you know, university. And we'd never talked about, you know, working on games together. Um, but it was kind of like, a, hey, you're studying music. You can compose pretty well. Uh, Joel's always been involved in, like, rock bands and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and because he was studying digital music at the time, he was able to get really into the feel of 16-bit music and 8-bit music, which is what we were going for for Lennon's Inception. Um, so one of the quirks of Lennon's Inception is there's two art styles, one that's like 8-bit style, you know, Game Boy style, and then one that's kind of like more of a Game Boy Advance kind of like 16-bit style. And um, so the entire soundtrack actually is produced twice, each representing both those kind of art styles and those areas of music. So, you know, we worked with Joel on um, Lennon's Inception, and then it was kind of a no-brainer to work again on together on cassette beasts and i really wanted kind of like a rocking kind of feel soundtrack and again mm -hmm. and i said joel had always worked in rock bands um and kind of guitar stuff and that's like his jam so i was like this is what we're going for let's le like lean into it and um it worked out really well the soundtrack is uh you know it has this kind of like 80s -y feel it's kind of got somewhere between like 80s british new wave pop and then like 
anime intro it's that kind of level of cheesy <laughs> right and it's like it's like synthy and retro but not in the kind of as i said the kind of synth wavy hotline miami style retro mm-hmm. so it kind of it's kind of own distinct style i think it feels very cassette piece and um the soundtrack is definitely i think one of the highlights of the game mm-hmm. um we have these vocal tracks uh from a vocalist uh shelby harvey and they come in when you fuse so it's almost like this kind of anime theme song power-up moment when you fuse oh, in yeah. the game and you know that can happen in any battle and then all the various battle tracks in the game have this vocal track version that will come in when you transform and it has like it's it's very like cheesy um but i think it's very cool and i think that's the most important part <laughs> definitely and yeah it gives it more of that unique cassette beasts identity totally i think a lot of people come into a game like cassette beast expecting a very kind of like video gamey soundtrack but i think we wanted to make it the video game that didn't feel like it was leaning too hard into the video gaminess you know we wanted to make it feel like you know cool and like kind of you know has this kind of rebel atmosphere and it kind of i think it leans into that well yeah i th- there are like a select few game soundtracks i keep on my iphone because i i mean not that like i don't like video gamey signed of music <laughs> but the music that isn't that stands out to me like mm-hmm. I, I could just listen to it anytime i don't need the context of the game yes like the world ends with you incredible <laughs> soundtrack that's what we actually get compared to a lot which is interesting because yeah. none of us on the team have ever played the world oh you have sure. to uh <laughs> what a game it's i like... know it's i know it's a good one it's just always slipped me by yeah. i think again um it's interesting because what i know of the game is it kind of does have that like hanging out with your fr- you and your cool friends hanging out in uh in fashionable shibuya vibe and yeah. we're kind of doing that but for like uncool english towns <laughs> uh, there's kind of maybe there's a spiritual link there maybe yeah <laughs> coming up i know you guys are working on a multiplayer update for cassette beasts mm-hmm. and that kind of was yeah another thing that was surprising to me because i don't think i've ever heard of a turn-based rpg before that has co-op and so uh, yeah i was wondering exactly how that works (laughs) so it's so the actual game as it is has uh co-op um you know you can play uh, a second player can jump in and take over as the companion player in the world and you can play through battles because all the battles are kind of like 2v2 you know so second player can always play as your second party member and with the multiplayer how it works is it kind of like puts everyone in your world so you know as you're running around you can connect you can join a lobby and you can see your friends you know running around and playing their version of the game and you can also you know meet up and you can battle each other um you can trade you know tapes with each other and you can see how each other is doing getting like the status updates when your friends like successfully you know complete the quest and stuff and you can also kind of team up in the world to do like co-op fights against like the big mini boss uh, mm-hmm. world battles that exist in the game um it it changes the game a lot. It's very interesting, you know. It goes from this like quiet, contemplative, you know, you know, you're exploring this strange world with your friends and drinking coffee and having campfires to like, hey, you and all your mates are kind of running around and <laughs> you know, getting up to all sorts. It kind of makes yeah. the, the activity of the world feel very different. It's very yeah, interesting. Monster huntery. Yeah, it almost turns it into like a not like an quite an MMO, but maybe like a mini MMO that you and just your friends are playing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very fun. I mean, um. It's still in development and 
uh, we're excited to get more news out to people when we can, but I'm really excited for it. I think it's going to be uh, really exciting. And also, you know, going back to what I was saying before about how the game is broken in certain ways, you know, you can really bust the game strategy wise, but there's also multiple strategies that you can use to bust the game. So then it starts asking the question, you know, in a competitive scenario where players are fighting each other, you know, which is the best strategy? It's probably going to be really chaotic. I'm very excited. I can imagine. <laughs> and what is something about your personal process, Jay, that nobody knows? Ooh, ooh, that's a good question. I maybe put a lot more of myself into the character dialogue than I think I let on. Because, mm -hmm. um, I mean, so, you know, you're hanging out with these characters and you're doing these quests and stuff. And um, a lot of the themes of the games is kind of like, there's a lot of character exploration about like what it means to make art, what it means to be a good person and what it means to, you know, live up to your own standards for yourself. And I think a lot of that is maybe more autobiographical than I let on. Um, I very much, I was writing this game script, you know, as I was coming towards the end of my twenties and it's like a lot of the, the kind of feelings of the characters in the game reflect various things that I felt as I kind of like was coming out of that period of my life and, mm -hmm. you know, moving on into extra adulthood of your 30s. Yeah, I just went through and, that, so I know. Yeah, no, yeah, so it's all very recent to me. And I think a lot of that was in there. So I think a lot of the voices of the characters are to an extent, you know, various aspects of like myself and my feelings of various things. Um, I say that probably doesn't come through. I'm sure it does come through in a lot of ways, um, especially, you know, there's a lot of discussion on, you know, what it means to make art in this kind of society and why we work and things. And I think it's a mm -hmm. lot of things that a lot of people you know, millennials and younger are kind of going through and experiencing and processing themselves. And this game was kind of me doing that openly and publicly, I guess, in, mm. in, in that way. That's great. You have that outlet for it. <laughs> <clears throat> that was all the questions I had, Jay. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Hmm. Good question. Um, how far are you into inscription? Um, I am. I just finished the second act of the game. Uh, gotcha. So yes. I just got to when it goes back to 3D and it's like the cyberpunk <laughs> area. Very exciting. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really great game. Again, I think when you think about the indie games that are, you know, catching people off guard or even just the most memorable game moments that people talk about. Oh, yeah. I think the things that always stick out to you, I mean, do you have like those really memorable moments in games that you think are the ones that define the medium for you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, uh, in the first near when you get to yeah. the end of the game and you see uh, like everything fade away and your data go away because <laughs> it's, it's, it's really <laughs> moving and heartbreaking. Um, I mean, uh, like I said earlier, big Kojima fan, Metal Gear Solid 2 totally. is probably my favorite. Uh, that mm -hmm. part near the end where the AI is taking over <laughs> and everything is like shorting out and your UI is replaced with a girl in a bikini and <laughs> it's just things where it totally blurs the line between the player and the game and it feels like everything is sort of jumping out at you is totally I, mean... I think those are the moments that have made it for me and yeah inscription when the youtuber guy just shows up <laughs> I, I was that was another one it's, I think it's so interesting because as you describe them, they're all things that catch you off guard. Yes. That are the most memorable moments. And it's almost like you can't 
have that now because games are or it's very difficult to have that successfully in a game now because games are so expensive they have to be safe you know yeah and it's interesting to think about the things that we actually like the most about games are the things that actually catch you completely off guard were never advertised to you um and it's easy to do those in smaller budgets than it is to do on bigger ones mm -hmm. what about you any particular moments like that uh, is it, have you heard of a game called 13 sentinels Yes, I, I haven't gotten very far in it. I have it, but... This is a game that I think uh, everyone who loves, you know, when you talk about things like Kojima and, you know, games that kind of play with expectations and, you know, your relationship with games, I think it's a must-play. Mm -hmm. um, it's always one that sticks in my head just because it it's almost like a masterclass in narrative design. It's almost Ooh. like the way that everything is put together is so interesting. I think the opening is pretty slow because it requires you to set a few things up, but it's definitely one that I think get five hours in and suddenly the kind of the grand design of it kind of becomes so clear and then the ambition they have with it becomes so kind of remarkable that i just it stuck with me years later still hmm. uh, it's definitely one i think if you're a fan of things like nia i would definitely yeah. recommend great but again it's again it's all in the things that you know play with your understanding of how big the scope of this is or what could possibly happen in the game that changes right that's that's definitely maybe that's something to leave or to finish the interview on. But uh, it's <laughs> definitely something I think about a lot when I'm trying to write something interesting into the game and always keep trying to push ourselves with as well. Definitely. Good note to end on. But of course, <laughs> this is the Pixel Pizza podcast. We do have to end on a particular note, which is Jay Velas, where is your favorite pizza place? Ooh, we have some. So I'm um, on the uh, the coast, the south coast of England in a town mm -hmm. called Brighton. Um, and there's a few pretty good pizza places around. Um, there's a big veggie pizza scene down here. Oh, good. Um, but I can't say I can't say I can come up with one off the top of my head. But um, give me like a nice, uh, you know, nice pepperoni uh, with an interesting topping. There's a place called Pizza Pilgrims that does one with uh, pepperoni and spiced honey. That oh. was very interesting. I had recently, and you would never, you would never suspect pizza and honey is a good combo, but. I was impressed. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds that sounds like uh, something out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like something you probably need a lot of heartburn medication for. But oh, that, oh, pretty yeah, good. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So thank you so much for joining me today, Jay. No worries. It's been fun. Yeah. Uh, so where can people keep track of you and your work? Um. So if you're uh, interested in cassette beasts, uh. You can follow uh, the studio at uh, twitter.com slash bitten studio. That's bitten with a Y because it's kind of like megabyte, which means mm -hmm. that people think that our studio is called Byton Studio. And maybe it is because we're not very decision. Like we haven't got a decision <laughs> there. But um, right now we're going with Bitten Studio, but maybe it's Byton next week. Yes. Who knows? Uh, Listeners, I had to ask for a clarification before the oh, interview. Of course. <laughs> it catches us off too, don't worry. I mean, uh, cassettebeast.com, we also have a website for the game. Um, yeah, and we also have a Discord as well. That's um, kind of the official uh, community Discord, and we hang out in there as well. And uh, you can, if you like the game or have any questions on it, you can come by and bother us about them, and we'll mm. probably answer. Sweet. All right, then that wraps up another episode of Pixel Pizza. We've got one more track from Lom Arme, our chiptune artist of the week, and that is called Surepose. So enjoy that. We'll see you next week with another Pixel Pizza.